Remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will pick up where we left off last Lord's Day from the 11th chapter of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you might take them and follow along with me. If not, listen very carefully to the Word of God as it's read. It is the Word of God, beginning at verse 7 through verse 15. And as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken of the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And from those days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come, he who has ears. Let him hear. Our gracious Father, we do ask that you would open up our ears that we might hear and be attentive to your word this day, and that your spirit would make the application specific to each one of us in only ways that you can, and that you would be glorified in the preaching and the reception and the communication now and the fellowship with our God through this preaching as it is worship. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we discussed last Lord's Day, that there are many different responses to this man, Jesus. And one of the responses that did come forward from this man named John were some doubts. Some doubts. We talked about that last Lord's Day, when, when even true believers doubt. But one of the liabilities of doubting, especially for Christian leaders, is it can bring into question their credibility. And that can be harmful to Christ and His mission and to the tender conscience of of others. Questions and doubts about Jesus can undermine even other people's confidence of Him. One thing our Lord does here is, in following up the answer to His disciples' questions, He then takes and turns the attention to John Himself. John comes asking and clarifying about the person of Jesus, and now Jesus clarifies the person of John, so that there would be no doubts in the mind of his disciples pertaining John. Now you may recall in John's gospel, he gave us a sevenfold witness of Jesus himself. Now Jesus says, I, the first witness, I'm a witness of myself, that I am the Messiah and I'm the Son of God, and this witness is true. But, but he says, there's another witness, and he goes down and he gives seven witnesses, and the second witness was John himself. On seven, or, or at least on four separate occasions where Jesus is speaking to the people, he directly refers back to the witness of John the Baptist. And our witness for Christ is important. And it's important for us as we bear testimony 
for Christ to have credibility. And it's critical when we think about and testify of the Lord to be certain of these things. So why doubts may creep into our spirit from time to time. What the Lord does here is He supports John and He repairs if there was any damage that have caused the disciples. He, he now turns and He speaks of this man John. And what we have here is our Lord's testimony of John because of John's testimony of the Lord. And that's why it's important. So who was this man, John? And then why does it matter? What's the so what? And what the Lord does here is he gives us two things. He, first of all, gives us the identification of this man. And then after he gives us the identification of this man, he then gives us an application of that identification. So identification and application. Let's look at those two as our broad headings today as we consider, first of all, the identification of John. And to that end, the Lord raises three questions about the identity of John. And the first question regarding his character. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken about with the wind? A reed is a very tall and slender plant in the grass family, mostly found in marshes and in, the, uh, in wetlands and uh, it will move about even in the slightest bit of breeze. And he's asking, did you go out to see someone like this? A man that just wavers about with the slightest breeze or current. What did you go out to see? A man that was fickle? A man that was weak and wavering that can move easily from one position to another position? Did he change his convictions when Herod took him and threw him into prison, did he back off or, or compromise one bit with that? John was a strong, single-minded man whose heart was fixed and whose character was unwavering. No, that's not what you saw when you went out to the wilderness. Well, what did you go out to see? The second question comes about, and that speaks to his lifestyle. Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No, because those kind of people are in king's palaces. This was a man whose general approach to life was consistent with the message that he testified. He was a witness of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and his character was consistent with that message. And Jesus is pointing, of all things, to his clothing to testify of that. Clothing speaks, people. It speaks. It's not benign. It has something to communicate. We've spoken about this several times before, and I'm not going to dwell on it too much here now, but it does have something to do with our character and who we are. The Bible does talk about clothing, even from the very first time when man fell and tried to clothe himself and it was inadequate so God had to clothe them. And ever since the fall man has been naked and there has been clothing that's been designed in relationship to God. And every time we get up in the morning we put on clothes it is not benign. It speaks. 
But not only does what the Bible say important about clothing, but you need to go and you need to listen to what the world says about clothing. What does the world say about it? And then compare that back with what the Bible's principles are, and I think that can be helpful. But here we see that his whole general approach to life and his his testimony was agreeable to the message that he brought. Because the message and the life together was a package that brought witness that Jesus was the Messiah, and so that believing in that, people might have life eternally in his name. So when he called people to repent, the people says, what shall we do? And he tells them, he who has two tunics, go and sell one and give to him who needs. Or just give to him who doesn't have any food. Do the same. He tells the tax collectors, don't collect any more than what is appointed for you. He tells the soldiers, live content with your wages. This is a man whose general approach to life and his lifestyle was consistent with the message that he brought to the people. John was calling people to repentance from their worldliness and their worldly lifestyles. And he himself was keeping with that character. And false prophets are not that way. False prophets are often mercenaries. And they blow with the wind. They change depending on what the, the people desire or what they feel would be received or with favor. John's character was not that. Then he comes to the third question. And the third question speaks about his divinely appointed mission. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Was the first answer. Yes, you did go out to see a prophet. Prophesying in general, very general terms, is is just any speaking for God. Very generally. But there are specially appointed people who were distinct and empowered with the Spirit, and God gave them revelation from God, and when they spoke, they spoke with inerrancy. In the Old Testament, these men were sometimes called seers because they were men who had the vision into the will of God and were under the direct command of God. These men were also referred to as a man of God. In other words, God's own possession. Moses and Samuel and Elisha. These were men of God. But what was distinctive about these people is often the way that they came into their office, which was very different than how kings and priests come into their office. And these three particular offices in the Old Testament, the prophet, the priest, and the king, the priest and the kings often came into their office by lineage into the family in which they were born. The prophets, the sons of prophets, were never guaranteed that they would become prophets. Prophets were not elected to office by popular vote. They did not take it upon themselves. A prophet was selected out from among God's people to represent God to the people. And that calling was often unique and very dramatic You might recall Moses at the burning bush, or Ezekiel by the riverside, 
Or Jeremiah, who says, before you were even born, I formed you, I called you to be a prophet. Or little Samuel, in the middle of the night, hearing a voice, and three times running to Eli. Yeah, what do you want? Dramatic, specific, divine calling. And these men were given a calling that they could not escape. In fact, if they attempted to flee their calling or do not speak as God had commanded, God would squeeze them. Just like Jonah, who squeezed, literally, until they responded. Throughout the entire Old Testament, we only have about 40 named prophets. And this John had that very rare distinction. He was a prophet like this. But Jesus goes on and says, secondly, no, he's more than a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. And in what sense is John more than a prophet? Here the Lord proceeds to answer by quoting from the passage we read a minute ago from Malachi chapter 3. And Malachi is speaking to a culture of people where there's a great deal of cynicism. A great deal of cynicism regarding the prophet and, and the benefits of really following the Lord and, and believing His promises and, and serving the Lord. What is the benefit? We've been hearing these promises of Messiah and it's just been so long in coming and there's been an apathy of spirit and a lethargy that just creeps over them. And that's the context. And he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Now, I emphasize that word me. Because this is a reference speaking of Yahweh speaking to his people through Malachi. And he says, I'm going to send a messenger and he's going to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, he will suddenly come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, and behold, he is coming. Now right there, it is speaking about a messenger that would come and prepare the way right before Yahweh. This is Jehovah, Yahweh God. And this messenger would prepare the way as Yahweh Himself comes and He will be found in the temple. That is why it was so critically important for God's people to get to the work of building that temple. Because that's where they would meet. Yahweh. Yahweh of hosts is speaking. He says to me that he will send his messenger to prepare the way before me. And what Jesus does in chapter 11 here is he takes and borrows from this and quotes Malachi 3.1, but he adapts it to himself and to this John. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you, he says. And he's quoting. Our Lord alters the quotation to apply it to himself and to Yahweh who is speaking. And when you put those two passages, Malachi 3.1 and 
and then the verse 10 of chapter 11 of Matthew, you put them back to back, you have part of the great mystery of God Himself. That God is such a being that He can speak to Himself. The me who comes and says, Yahweh, I send my messenger before you. And we have Yahweh speaking to Himself. In this mysterious way. And anyone looking at that would ask, well, how can Yahweh speak to another person who is also Yahweh? Now you can see where that's going. You've got the foundation. You've got the background. You've got the theology. But what is significant for John is he is the one that is called to go directly before Yahweh God himself to prepare him before men. Prepare men for Him. And other prophets, they pointed and they looked forward and they said, you know, He's coming. He's coming. Other prophets says, keep looking. Other prophets say, He is near. John would say, He is here. The King Messiah has arrived. In fact, look, behold, the Lamb of God. John was greater than a prophet because he was the immediate forerunner and he served in the immediate presence of Yahweh. So he was a prophet, yes. One of the rare, distinct prophets, yes. He was more than that. And then third, he tells us he was a great man. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. He was a great man. Well, what does greatness consist of? Greatness does not consist of possessions. And we can be prone to think this way. In fact, in our flesh, we, we generally are prone to think this way. Rich people have many friends. And that's always been true. Poor people don't have near as many friends. That's always been true. Our, the Proverbs speak about that. Solomon spoke about that. He realized that. That's the way of the world. And we can sometimes ourselves have a propensity to obtain our security or our self-worth in our own possessions. We can feel somewhat great if we have many possessions. And that's just unbiblical and unscriptural and just worldly altogether. The cars, the trucks, the clothes, the houses, even our family and children, the things that we have, the we tend to, to show our things and have a little more sense of self-worth from them. That is not greatness. That is not where greatness comes from. We love it when people take note of our things. We have all ways, a lot of new ways to show our things. We have ways to show our things to people halfway across the world. And we may feel good or may even feel great, but that is not what greatness could comprised of. 
Neither is greatness comprised of a status or a position. Now, there may be great positions, but because there's some significant, notable position, that does not mean that the person occupying that position is a great person. And occupying that position does not make the person great. It doesn't come from possessions. It doesn't come from status. It doesn't come from position. And it doesn't even come from God-given special gifts and talents. Like the wisdom of Solomon. Or like the conquest of David. Or like the miracle workings of of Elijah, none of those things made these men great. That's not what, how our Lord sees greatness. And do you want to be great? Do you have a sense in any one of your spirit, just in the, is it wrong to be great? I'm going to tell you how to, how to be great. I'm going to let the Lord himself tell us what he thinks of greatness. God's estimation of greatness is nearness to and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Himself. Greatness consists in the immediate acquaintance of God. Do you remember when Miriam and Aaron challenged Moses? And when they challenged him, even among the people and his position there. And God immediately came down and he spoke with them about this in the presence of Moses. And he said in Numbers 12, he says, now hear my words. Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He chastens Miriam and Aaron for this. The greatness of Moses was in his closeness to and his acquaintance with God himself. That's where greatness lies. We can kind of understand this today when a, a great dignitary is around. We're always wondering about those people in close proximity to him. What do we think about those people that are kind of at his right hand or his left hand? That close proximity gives us a mind of something about them as it pertains to that person. And that's the point here. It's the greatness of people as the way God estimates it is their close proximity to Himself. During all the years and centuries that preceded John, there was no one elevated above this man, John. Because he was called of God to go directly and immediately before the Lord Himself into the very presence of the one that He prophesied. He could see Him. He could get close to Him. And He could point people directly to Him personally. 
Greatest person never born in this sense was John. And when Jesus says that of someone, that's a great credential. When Jesus says to John, he's a great man. You think about who's saying that. When Jesus honors you and says, you know, he's a great, he's a great man. She's a great woman. That's a great credential that God himself puts upon you. And so here we have this identification of a man, and he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. He was a great man. And now we have the application of that identification as it comes out as Jesus is making the application. Because it's all going to come back around to him. Now Jesus identified John as a prophet, one of his rare and distinct men, of which only about 40 of them are in the Old Testament named. He's even more than a prophet. He's even the greatest man in the way that God measures greatness in his estimation of any man that has ever been born till that time. And now he moves on to the application. And the first part of that application is something that pertains to you. The least in the kingdom is greater than John. And he says here, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. Now the least is oftentimes in Scripture referred to as the youngest or the freshest of disciples. It can refer to babes and infants, of which we have a number of, and that number continues to grow. Or it can be simply a spiritual infancy or even a fresh convert so what did the lord mean when he says even the freshest of converts even of a small child is greater than the one who was the greatest born of men john was like on the very top step of a flight of stairs that goes up to a landing. And as he is on that top stair, he can see out over and is elevated higher than all those who have come before him. But he's on the top step of that landing. And let's say this is the landing and this is the step. And here he is. And there's the landing. And all everybody else who's come before, he's elevated above. And yet... Here we have a little child who's on the very next step in the landing upward. Who's elevated above John and above everyone else in the whole Old Testament. As now that little child of five years old will have more knowledge and more understanding of who the Lord is than even John the Baptist. Who immediately ministered in Yahweh's presence. And that's the picture of what God is picturing here. Think about what our children know of the Lord. Things that John never knew. You remember John's ministry when he was finished, God called him home. He didn't see 
the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't understand the blood of Jesus like our five-year-olds do. He, doesn't, he didn't see uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. He doesn't understand like your five-year-olds do. Your five-year-old and your four-year-old and your six- and ten-year-olds, they understand that Jesus not only rose on the third day, He ascended back on high, He sent the Spirit out, the kingdom has been growing since, and John didn't see that like they did. The least of the woes in the kingdom are greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest man up until that time to live, in the way that God measures greatness, the close proximity and acquaintance with God through Jesus Christ. That's a great privilege that we have. The least of the kingdom is greater in the way that God counts greatness. The Lord says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Not let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glories in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. That should be your glory today. And that's the thing in which we are to glory. That's what the Lord holds out for anyone today. That is where your greatness will come from. In proximity to God Himself. The next thing Jesus does is He demonstrates that it takes spiritual energy to enter the kingdom of God. Now look at this next verse. And from the days of John the Baptist now until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. A few weeks ago, I had a young man come up to me after the service who happened to be reading through his Bible, and he comes to this, and he goes, what does that mean? I say, stay tuned. <laughs> um, that young man happens not to be here today. He's up in Pennsylvania. Comes with great questions. But the kingdom of God is forcibly entered. It takes forcible action. And this is action of violent men who take it by force. It's the idea, it's the illusion here. And what the Lord is not speaking about is taking up arms. He's not talking about physical force. He's talking about spiritual energy. He speaks this way because the world out of which you were saved and out of which you have been redeemed is a context that you're going to have to take up a sword and you're going to have to, to battle. And getting into the kingdom of the Lord has already spoken that He didn't come to bring peace but a sword. And He shows what that means. And it's in the same vein that He speaks about taking the kingdom by force. It's necessary. You're going to have to be impassioned and forceful and aggressive like an army when it invades a citadel. There's a determination to overcome every obstacle and opposition that comes against them in pressing into the kingdom. They will not be stopped. You cannot really enter into Christ's kingdom if you come with a casual or flippant or lackadaisical attitude. That is not the picture Jesus has here. There's got to be an earnestness in your spirit like storming the citadel. 
And if you enter the kingdom, you have to overcome opposition. And sometimes that opposition comes from your family or it comes from your work or people's opinion of you. But you're going to have to arm yourself like a soldier and be prepared to endure hardness. And you're going to press into the kingdom like a violent man who wants it. And that's what he's talking about. I used that illustration over the course of a couple of last couple of days when men were battling in their flesh against what they knew to do in their spirit. I said, be violent, be militant, and take the kingdom by force. See, does that make sense? You've got to arm yourself. This is something that matters. The kingdom of God is not something that you can be flippant about. It's not something that you can be casual about. It's not something that you can be inactive about. This is spiritual energy that, yes, comes from the Lord, the Spirit. But it is something that will activate you to commit you to determination and will rise up and do the battle that will give the victory to honor the Christ name. One of the problems I think that we have is we do not understand that we are in a battle every single day of our life. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and the things that we war against are not flesh and blood but against the principalities and the powers behind the things that we see. These things do work through people. They do work in the culture of the world and we're going to have to be violent against the flesh. Jesus was. It was a bloody battle for him. Then he concludes a very, very, very personal application. For all the prophets and the law prophesied till John, but if you are willing, if you now are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear it, let him hear. And that's to all of us today. It's very personal. All the prophets and law prophesied until John. He's now explaining the change of times pertaining to man. Which puts us right into the period that we find ourselves. Up until John, there were predictions. There were promises. There were these things that were being worked out. And John here marks the end of that Old Testament era. And if you're willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who is to come, which marks the end of that era and a beginning of a new one. And our Lord is referring to the prophecy at the very end of the Old Testament in that book of Malachi that we've already quoted, that the Elijah is coming and he's coming back. And that prophecy was fulfilled, as our Lord says, not in the literal coming back of Elijah, who was taken up from God. Not in the transmigration of Elijah's soul into the embodiment of another body. No, but in the same spirit, in the same power, in the same character of that prophet Elijah. He's coming. And if you, if you understand it, he has come. And that man John. If you get that, 
you're going to understand that I'm the Messiah. That's the point. And if you understand that I'm the Messiah, you're going to have life. You're going to come into the kingdom. You're going to understand this. Because the testimony of John is true, and his testimony should not be doubted, even though he had a little fit of doubt. But let me tell you about this man, John. That's what Jesus says. Because if you believe him, and you understand him, and you don't doubt him, you're going to believe me, and you won't doubt me. The era of Messiah has come, and whether you see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's appointed Messiah, and John has led Elijah to come, or are you still waiting for that? If you can receive it, notice how he puts that, if you are willing to receive it, then the scripture now has been fulfilled. And John is the bridge here between the Old Testament and the New. The old era has gone, the new has come. And he won't get to see and have all the privilege that even your children have. But hear this, and some people won't. Some people do, some people won't. You're going to find everything in your fallen nature will fight against receiving Jesus and coming into this close proximity with God. And to come into the kingdom, it will involve some violence here. Some militant violence of energy that's spiritual. But even to maintain your closeness with God and your acquaintance with Him, to maintain your first love and to, to fight everything in your fallen creatureliness and your nature, you're going to be violent with that. Yes? Yes? You will find that your pride will rear itself up and, and concoct all kinds of excuses to rationalize why you should not storm the gates of the kingdom today. You'll be a little casual with your spiritual life, a little flippant with Jesus, a little lackadaisical with your ministry and discipleship. You who has ears, there's a kingdom. There is a kingdom. And you're going to have to expend great spiritual energy and forcibly flee from overcoming every impediment and overcoming every obstacle to appreciate and inherit and love and to thrive in and to minister for in this great kingdom and take out the sword and hat to pieces all of the enemies that are standing in the way and keeping you back from enjoying your greatness with God. Your close proximity and acquaintance with your Creator and your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, some of you could be greater today in just simply taking violence, doing some violence to some things in your life. Perhaps there's some, some idols in your life that you need to do some violence with to come into close proximity back to God. Perhaps there's some priorities that are misplaced that you're going to have to do some violent to in order to come back into your close proximity and acquaintance with your first love. You're going to have to storm those things. 
And you're going to have to be serious about who you are as a Christian. And you're going to have to not be casual about it or flippant with God because the greatness that's going to come is going to come because of the one with whom you are close to. But if you're not close, then you probably feel it. And it will not be in sincere greatness. You'll, you'll look to other things like your possessions or, or your status or your position or your, your, your place in life in the presence of others to find your self-worth and, and to have people nod their heads and pat you on the back and um, brag about your things. But if you are strong, glory not in your strength. If you're rich, glory not in your possessions. Glory only in Christ. And when you do, He will honor you and he will tell you you are great because of the proximity with whom you belong. And what a great credential it will be for you when the Lord himself calls you great. Let's pray. Our Father, how thankful we are, how you honor us with whom to whom there is nothing in ourselves to be honored. We're thankful that you take notice of us and you have saved us and you have given us Christ. And when you look down upon us now, you see your son and how thankful we are that you brought us into him and united us together in him, having put to death our old man and creating us new in Christ, that he lives in us. Lord, how thankful we are that Our greatness belongs to you. And how much we long to be closer to you. We have so many competing interests in our lives. Whether it be the the projects or the work or the the focus that we often get ourselves to before we get ourselves close to God. And our soul feels it and it dries up and it knows that something is longing and missing. We pray that today you would square us up with the priorities of the kingdom and we would... Be violent with some of those things of the flesh that we would press into the kingdom and the joy of the kingdom. That we might rest in your faithfulness and rest in you. We strive about with so many of our workings and and our meritorious attempts and yet all of those things fall short. Energize us with your spirit that there would be great spiritual energy in us and disciplining ourselves into godliness and and knowing the joy and the love and the peace that the Spirit brings out as a fruit. Lord, we pray that you would draw nigh unto us as we now draw nigh unto you. We pray that we would resist the devil and that he would flee. And that we might have a sensible understanding of your presence with us here at the table today. In Jesus' name, amen.